Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 468 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, July 2nd, 2010, and it is call-in Friday. I have about 10 of your calls lined up. Three came in at the last minute from the Facebook fan list, so if you want to always have a reminder on these mornings and have a chance to get priority in the queue, uh, make sure you're a member of our Facebook fan page. Great questions today. I got some questions today on, you know... Dog poo in the compost bin. What's what's the real level of acceptance? And and you'll understand what what I mean by that when you hear the question. Uh, I also have questions about uh, dealing with being basically a roommate or renting a room, and how do you prep and how do you store your items using Google Documents for portability? Added onto our uh, our technology show. What exactly uh, is compost and what goes in it? Uh, how do you modify a generator to get it to run on pure ethanol? Uh, what would happen if the Federal Reserve ever refused to lend money to the government? And a bunch of other really great questions from you guys. So uh, sit tight real quick. We'll get to those. i got some housekeeping. And of course, our big contest today with uh, three more packs of seeds going out from High Mowing Organic. All right, so first of all, though, let's take care of our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, Backyard Food Production. You might win some seeds today. If you want to know what to do with them once they show up to really turn your homestead into a food production machine, check out Backyard Food Production. Everything from uh, agricultural production to producing your own protein and using agricultural protein to feed your protein until it's ready for you to feed upon it. It is a great DVD, extremely instructional, and a really great way to learn new creative ways to do things. Next up today and sponsor of the day is Shelf Reliance. Shelfreliance.com. Uh, Notice I said shelf, not sh- uh, self. Uh, these guys came on as a sponsor 90 days ago, wanted to see, kind of test the waters, and uh, they have just agreed to sign with us for another year. So they are a true supporter of the show. They're going to be with us for another full year. And that is awesome. I also think their products are awesome. I think their food storage items are awesome. And I was just talking with one of their folks over there yesterday. And they're going to be sending me a great deal more stuff to review for you guys over the coming year. So you can look forward to that. But check them out. And they're running a sale right now with up to 25% off of some of their items. Uh, on the banner on our site, you'll see that. You can go over to their website. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and do our contest. Remember, uh, you send me the code word. You send it in the subject of the email. You send me nothing but the code word in the subject of the email. You do not use the contact form. You do not go to Facebook and send me a message. You don't send me a PM on the form. You send me an email and an email only. You send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You put the code word in the subject line. Send me your name, the email address you use to register for the contest, because if you didn't register, you can't play. Uh, and send me your shipping address. If you send me your shipping address and you win, I won't have to try to track you down over the weekend so Meredith can send your seeds. I will give out a package of high-mowing organic seeds, actually two packages, heirloom vegetable lovers and uh, kitchen herbs, total value $47.95 to the 10th respondent today. 
to the 40th respondent today. And since it went so fast, it went lightning like yesterday, uh, I will also give out the third pack to the 80th. So 10, 40, and 80. So everybody should have a chance to win. If you're still playing from yesterday, stop. It's all done. It was done within two hours yesterday. That's why I'm setting the third one up to 80 today. The code word. Go to High Mowing. Uh, highmowingseeds.com, High Mowing's main website. You'll see at the top of the menu that says our seed. And then if you hover on that, you'll see a drop down and you'll see where our seed comes from. Click on that. On that page, you will see two paragraphs uh, up toward the top. You'll see where our seed comes from and the next uh, paragraph you'll see in bold, our seed farm in, and it gives you a state. That state is the code word today. Put that state in the subject line. Send me the email. And uh, again, 10, 40, and 80 will win a $47 seed pack from High Mowing. Uh, I'm also going to do, again, for MSB, um, I will give you a code word for MSB right now. That code word will work for the first 10 people. $30 for the first year, only for the first 10 people to respond. Uh, and that code word is going to be, again, seeds. Same one as yesterday. I'm just going to reset it so it'll accept another 10 people. So if you use seeds to try to sign up for the MSB today and it doesn't work uh, for a discount, that just means that you weren't one of the first 10 starting after this show uh, aired. So there you go. Uh, there's the contest. You can win either $20 off your first year of MSB or you can win some seeds and you can play both ends. Remember, you can only send me one email. To, for the contest entry. This is not like call-in radio where you keep calling to your call number 10. If you send me multiple emails, you're disqualified. If anything but the name of that state is in the subject line of the email, you're disqualified. Don't put code word or anything like that. All right. And from now on, this is going to be shorter when I do contests. I'm going to be doing a lot more contests. I'm going to record a video for you guys for YouTube. Put it on the site. It's going to give you all the rules. And from then on, it's just going to be the code word is or find the code word here and go. And if you don't do it right after that, well, you should watch the video because I want to keep these these uh, these segments short in the beginning. Uh, so there you go. I'm not going to say anything about the MSB or the Members Brigade today other than it's a good deal. Consider supporting the show if you don't win one of the discounts on it. All right, so let's go ahead now and take your questions. I love these uh, call-in shows. I love hearing from you. It really makes the show more connected to the audience. So let's go ahead and take that first question. Hello, Jack. My name's Michael Collins. I just recently started listening to the podcast, turned on by a good friend that I work with. In any case, I had a couple questions. One, uh, as far as a bug-out location, uh, how do you know when it's too close to mainstream traffic? I live in uh, southwest Kansas. We have a lot of railways and, uh, of course, little towns. Uh, but I'm considering some acreage, which is off of a, not really a main road. It's more like a back road but the backside roads uh, to, like, two or three little towns. Uh, my second question is, uh, and you'll have to forgive me for not knowing this, but uh, could you define what compost is and what all can be added to it uh, to make compost uh, so that I can uh, better get started here with my garden? Uh, thank you for your service. I appreciate everything you're doing. Okay, those are two really good questions. I'm only going to answer one, though, and not because the second question is not good, but because my next caller has a question that's very similar to your compost question. Not It really expands on it. So I'm going to answer your question on bug-out locations, 
and then we'll take the next caller, and I'll kind of answer you both at the same time, just because I think it'll fit better. Like I said, there's a lot of synergy, guys. Uh, week to week, when you guys call in, uh, a lot of overlap, and that's cool, because it means we're thinking about the same things. On the bug-out location, this is a personal preference thing, to a large degree, and it's based on what you're preparing for and what you personally feel is going to be your biggest threat. There are people out there, there are some prominent people out there, that would tell you, you know what? The only safe place for you is going to be somewhere like Alaska or Idaho. And you need to have a place way up in the mountains, away from all the towns. And if you're not at least that remote, when the shit hits the fan, you're done. All right. And I think those people, how can I put it, are absolutely 100% full of shit 99.9% of the time. There is the 0.1% of the time that they would be right. And if you are really worried about that 0.1%, if that's what you're preparing for, then you need, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be Idaho or Alaska. Those are just two examples of places that are considered acceptable by these type of folks. Uh, but it, you need some place that's that kind of remote. Some place that um, it would be very difficult to get to without actually knowing where it is. For your, uh, for your edification, though, uh, you're already in kind of not the most populated area. Uh, Southwest Kansas is uh, is not exactly a, a tourist mecca. You'll have to forgive my knowledge of Kansas geography, but I think you got Wichita to the east. I wouldn't call Wichita Southwest. So if you're in Southwest, I think you're looking at like, isn't your biggest area there like Dodge City? Um, and that's I guess that does bring some tourists in, but I, I just don't think that you're. It's not like you live where I do in Arlington, between Dallas and Fort Worth, or Jacksonville, Florida, or Atlanta, Georgia, or anything like this. You've already got a somewhat mitigated uh, reality. There's also not a lot there that people are going to run to. Everybody thinks that if the shit is the fan, everybody's going to run out into the countryside. And there's some truth to that, but the reality is people don't generally run somewhere unless they have a place to get to. I actually think in a lot of disasters, you would see people run towards the city where they're setting up relief efforts. They would probably run away from the city with the problem toward the city with the solution. Um, and that, again, is not the 0.1% of the whole thing has fallen apart, but the other 99.9% of the time. For instance, when uh, New Orleans fell apart with Hurricane Katrina, where did people run to? They ran to Houston, and a lot of them came to Dallas. And Houston got so many of the lower tier, that it actually increased their crime rate. So what we've seen historically is that people run toward solutions. And there's not generally a solution in the middle of a hayfield. And most city slicker type folks don't know what to do in the middle of a hayfield anyway. So it's not that there would never be any kind of problems. And you've got to remember, a small local group that's banded together to loot is just as big a threat, if not a bigger threat, than a bunch of idiots from the city that have no idea what they're doing. So you do have a desire to have some kind of remoteness. I know it sounds like I'm taking a long time to answer this, but what I'm trying to do is frame it for you so you can make your own choice. My view is that if you can find a place that even though it's relatively close to some traffic, that it would be difficult to get to unless you knew where it was. I mean, you would really have to kind of, and I, a lot of these like farm areas in Kansas, and I grew up in Pennsylvania, and different terrain, but very similar layouts to the farmlands. There's places where you got to take six different turns on these roads that don't even have any names. You know, maybe they have like soft seen roads in Kansas. Uh, uh, actually, it was eastern Colorado that I was in where the roads didn't have names. They had the names of families 
on the intersection and have like six that pointed the same direction, basically saying like, you know, the Wilsons, the Thompsons, and the, and the Smiths live this direction. If you're out in a place like that, man, I just don't see it being that big of a problem. I can tell you what I did and you can, you can draw your own conclusions about my opinions from there. I found a place in the Washita Mountains of Arkansas. This is much I'll, I'll give you on that. It is not far from Hot Springs. Hot Springs is a city of about 25,000 people in Hot Springs proper. And then the whole area around it, you probably got about 50,000 people and everything that would be connected to it. Little What they would call a suburb is really its own little town. So that's a pretty sizable area. But, again, I live in a place where you really couldn't get there unless you knew to go there. Now, I do have locals that come up into the area sometimes that are kind of shocked because when they were little kids, there was nothing up where this place is, and people used to just go back there hunting. So there is a, there is some local traffic that would, would maybe be an issue back there. We have a gated community. We have a group of like-minded people together. Uh, not together for the purpose of survivalism, but people that live in those type of environments generally have very similar um, principles. Maybe not beliefs, but principles. And when you're bound by principles, you have a foundation of a great group. So I could be in Hot Springs, and I say 10 minutes sometimes, and that's an exaggeration. It would take it takes us about 20 minutes to get into Hot Springs from where we live. But it has a very remote feeling. So it has a lot to do not so much with just miles, but what type of miles are they? Are they windy roads up and down mountains with all dirt and... Are there people in between where the person would come from and where you are that in of themselves would be a blockade or a, a, a uh, you know have some level of uh, defense that they would provide as well? And that's what I have. So it's really up to you. What I would tell you you don't ever want to be is within sight of a major road or highway. And when I say major, I even mean the little like county road 303 type thing. If you can see a main road from your location, you know, long and straight with county maintenance on it, to me, I don't like that. Now, I'm not saying it won't work for you. There's some places that are really remote like that. But I want to be far enough back that I can't see. If I can't see the road, people from the road can't see me. So I'm not saying that it's not out there. You know, and you might even buy 20 acres that borders a county road like that. I'm saying put in a long, twisting driveway that is concealed as possible, and try to tuck your house far back, you're going to pay more now for your utility if you're going to put any kind of utilities in. But to me, it's worth it. So to me, it's more about strategic management of a property and strategic planning of a property than raw miles. But you have to make your own choice. This is the best I can do for you on that. Uh, let's go take the next caller, and then I'll give you my answer to your question and his at the same time. Hey, Jack. I've got a question for you about uh, composting and animal byproducts. How how exact do you have to be about avoiding having dog stuff in your compost? Uh, I know that you would not. Basically, I've been told you don't compost the manure from anything that is not a herb herbivore only. Um, and if I'm mowing my lawn and my dog lives in the yard how how bad is that um, I, I do go and rake stuff you know the dog stuff and throw it over the fence get rid of it um, as much as I can but there's inevitably some of that getting into my mower uh, getting into the clippings which is going into my compost bin I actually built the bin system um, from your video and I was just wondering is this 
something that it needs to be an absolute. I should not have any of it, and I, therefore I need to be super careful. Or, you know, as long as there's nothing visible, it's not going to be that much of a problem. Um, just wondering how how psycho I needed to be on on drawing that line on that. Thanks for the show. Okay, that's kind of an amusing question, and it, it gives me the ability to one make a little bit of a humor, I guess, with uh, while we don't compost dog crap, and um, you know, not being too maniacal about it. And also to answer the previous question, exactly what is compost and what goes in compost. Let's start out with why we're told not to put things like dog manure or cat manure in our compost bin. The reason is not that it won't eventually break down and become inert safe fertilizer. It's that the process for it to break down takes so much longer than composting things like, let's say, old lettuce leaves, uh, grass clippings, and oak leaves. You're looking at a year to a year and a half when you're composting quantities of human manure, dog manure, cat manure, anything that's an omnivore or a carnivore. And the big bugaboo in there, so to speak, is um, things that are like uh, bacteria and, and pathogenic that, that don't break down well and take a long time to kind of peter out. Uh, these are things like E. coli. All right, So you've got a much more complex manure uh, that generally has bacteria in it that can be harmful if ingested. So that's why they say not to do it. When you, and I'm not talking about running over the dog piles, right? Where you're just like, they're there, the hell with it, brah! And, and you know, you're mixing large amounts. But if when you're lawn mowing, and occasionally maybe you hit a piece that was missed that you didn't see or whatever, and it's chopped up and it's in with all the green matter that you're now going to throw into a compost bin and mix with brown matter, and you're going to cook that at high temperature, basically 160 degrees at the center of that compost pile, um... It's not that big a deal if there's a little bit in there because now it's broken up and it's part of a larger process and it's going to break down. This does not mean you can start chopping up dog shit and throwing it into your compost bin and have that be okay. What it does mean is if there's a little bit here and there from something like mowing the lawn, not that big a deal. Another part, though, and this starts to answer the other guy's question, telling you what I do. I bought a new lawnmower this year called a Toro Recycler. And it does either bagging, side eject, uh, or mulching. And I keep the bag on it at all times, even though I don't use it. It's got a little blue lever down by the uh, the base. And you throw that lever one way, and it's either going to side eject or it's going to mulch based on whether or not you have the side attachment on. You throw it another way, and it bags. I also have uh, Dutch clover planted in my yard. And I have several areas where the Dutch clover is much more uh, dense than the rest of the yard. And whenever I run over one of those areas, I throw it to bag. So that the primary amount of my mulching I'm doing is Dutch clover. I also have several large oak trees off to one side of the yard, and that, that part of the yard, really nothing grows over there. I do not rake my leaves in the fall from those leaves. I take some of them out of there because there's a ton, but I leave a lot of them back there. I just kind of let them pile up against the fence. And each time I mow the lawn, I go back there with uh, one of these big blue tubs like they sell at some of the stores. I guess they're probably about like probably 15 gallon or something like that. And I rake up a pile of leaves and I throw it in that tub. And then I dump it on the ground. I run my lawnmower over it two or three times. You know, filling up the bag, dumping it back in. And I end up with a tub full of chopped up oak leaves. And I set that by my compost bin. And every time I you know, bag up some of the green clover, I go over there and throw a few handfuls of clover, a few handfuls of leaves, and I do that and I mix it up. That gives me a great green-brown ratio. 
And that stuff is cooking hot the next day. Especially in the summertime when everything's highly active. You go out there the next day and stick your hands a couple inches there, and it is burning hot in there. So you may not have the exact same situation, but what I'm suggesting is if you had a lawnmower with that capability and you came by an area where it looks like the dog's done some things and you haven't quite gotten rid of it, that might be a good solution. So that way you can only bag uh, when you need to. But I wouldn't stress this too much if you're picking up the dog manure. Um, now, you said you throw it over the fence. I hope your fence line doesn't border a neighbor's house because that would be very nice. As far as what is compost, compost is nothing but broken down organic matter. Uh, and as I've said, you want to break down organic matter that is greens and browns are your primary two things you want to mix together. And that's easy to understand. If it's green, it's a green. If it's dried out, it used to be green or it's wood chippings or something like that, it's a brown. The more chopped up things are when you put them into a compost bin, the quicker they will break down to their component parts and become basically soil. A compost is basically the richest, most fertile soil in the world. And when you add in things like cow manure, uh, chicken manure, uh, safe manures to, to compost, uh, you will find that you get an even richer uh, and a faster breakdown. Manures, especially if it's chopped up a little bit, which sounds gross, but come on, folks, we're talking about you know cow manure is basically grass and grain. Um, when you chop that up, you get an even higher uh, cooking temperature of the compost. If you're doing compost, and if you use the bin system that I, I have in the MSB, and you're getting that good internal temperature, and there's a little bit of dog waste that ends up in there from what you're talking about, nothing to worry about. The other person's question, basically, if you pile up enough stuff and you give it enough time, it'll break down. And the more airflow you get through there and the better ratio of greens and browns mixed together, because you've got nitrogen and carbon then, when those two get together, they break down faster and they cook at a higher temperature. And the, the bin system that I have in the MSB... Uh, in the summertime when it's warm out and you're getting a good green-brown mixture like I'm describing, we go from you know brand new material to totally broken down and usable in the garden in about four weeks if you get a good green-brown ratio there. So that's what compost is, broken down organic matter, and that's why you don't use, if you ever wonder why you don't use dog manure or human manure, it's about what's in the manure and about the, how long it takes for the manure to break down to a safe level, not that it won't ever break down to a safe level. Uh, there are people that have built whole systems to make human manure safe. I'm not going there. I have a septic tank. And, um, you know, I, I can do my part for the environment, but only so much. All right, let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Ken in Michigan. Uh, just calling to uh, make a comment. Uh, I just finished listening to your uh, podcast on uh, the technology preps. And I had a comment about... Uh, storing your information and your data um, and your redundancy. Um, I use a, a Google uh, Android phone, and I found using uh, Google Documents, uh, which is a part of your Google email account, um, you can store tons of stuff in there. I have all my PDF files and uh, survival manuals and things stored in there. So I have access to them on my phone as well as anywhere that I have access to a computer uh, where I can get on Google. So. Just an idea. Another thing you could throw out there. I didn't hear you mention that, so that was a good one. Uh, people might want to try. Thanks, and good job. You know, Google Documents is a great resource, and it's one I shouldn't have left out of that list, so thanks for adding it. Um, for those who don't know, Google Documents is basically part of your Google account. 
and it allows you to create spreadsheets and documents online uh, that can be kind of spit out as like a, a Word document. They can be spread, spit out uh, as an Excel spreadsheet, as a comma delimited uh, a file, a text file, uh, all different types of files that are compatible with either uh, Windows or Macintosh. And and open office as well. So there's a lot you can do with Google Documents, a lot of information you can store, and it, I would say it's relatively secure. I mean, you can basically make a document so only you can access it, so somebody would have to be able to access your Google account um, to access your documents, unless you chose to share them. And that's a, another cool feature. You can have a relatively secure document that maybe you have... Uh, a group of five people that need to uh, share that document and you can share it with them and they can all look at it, update it together so that you know one person from a work group comes in and updates it and then when the next person comes in they'll see the updates and they'll see the new version and I, when I was working on a project one time we were using a spreadsheet for this and we were both working through two different uh, facets of the project we could actually in real time see the updates from the other side that was really cool uh, one thing I would suggest though is it's a great addition. Remember in the show about technology, we talked about uh, redundancies. Don't rely on the data to always be accessible. You can't be sure that the Internet will be available. You can't be sure that the cell network will work for that Android phone. So I still think it makes sense to pull those down to a thumb drive that you encrypt uh, or to a hard copy or something. But having that as an additional thing that, you know, again, what we said in that show, just because something might fail doesn't mean it will. And having that additional redundancy using the technology is a great idea. So great tip. Thanks a lot. And I, I don't know if there's a Google Docs app for the iPhone. I'm going to check into that today. But even if there isn't, since the iPhone basically is a browser, you could browse with Safari uh, into Google Documents and access them on your iPhone as well for the iPhone users. Uh, my iPhone is currently crippled. I'll tell you that story next week. You'll have to wonder what happened to my iPhone to cripple it. But I will tell you, it's a funny story, and uh, it wasn't a good day for me. Uh, but you'll have to tune in to hear that. So great call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dan in North Carolina. Um, I've got kind of a financial question for you, I guess. I, uh, uh, my wife and I just had our first kid last month, and uh, I'm wanting to do some type of a, uh, investment or savings plan that we can use you know, with like an 18-year horizon that we can use to help him pay for school, I guess, if he decides to go, um, or you know, use for ourselves, I guess, if he doesn't. So I wanted to see if you had any input on what type of um, savings plan or investment type of strategy that uh, we should look into. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Bye. Okay, well, good question. Let's start out with what I'm going to advise you not to do, because I did it, and it was not really the best idea in the world. Um, even though my son is working his way through college now, um, it, it seems that it may not have been... We're lucky that it turned out that it, it actually is going to work out for him. That when you had a young kid, and in my case, my son was seven when we started ours, and you're thinking about him being 18, 19, 20 years old, and going off to college, you, you just have this feeling that that's I want my son to have or my daughter to have that opportunity. So enters a financial advisor, which I call financial liars, as, as, as you guys may know, and says, oh, there's this great thing called a 529 plan. And here's how this works, you know, Mr. and Mrs. whatever. Uh, you put money in here, and you keep putting money in here, and it keeps building up, and it's all tax-free, and then your kiddo can go to school and withdraw the money, and you'll never pay any taxes on it. And then you find out that it's extremely expensive in penalties, to get that money back for anything other than approved educational programs. 
Now, what if your son or daughter uh, decides at 18, and they're really gifted and really talented, I'd rather just start a business? Or college just isn't for me. Now, I'm not saying that you cut a kid loose at 18 with $60,000 on their own and say, do whatever you want to with it. But wouldn't it be nice if you could say, I approve of this and I will release some of this money to you without you or the child paying excessive penalties, uh, which you will not do with a 529A plan. One of the career options my son considered but did not choose was actually getting his certification as a helicopter pilot. Um, the 529A plan will not work for that. So he would have had to take a bath of about 25% of his funds to access them, to use them for that program. I'm not saying that 529 is evil. I'm just saying that it's really not a good idea for anybody, including me, which I did, to decide for your child that they will be going to college when they're not even out of grade school or, in this case, not even in nursery school yet. It's probably a bad idea. So don't use vehicles like that for your savings. On investment types, um, I've been saying there's going to be a false recovery and then a major crash. So you know what I'm going to tell you? Stick mostly to cash equivalents. You know, there's worse things to, to do than buy a 5% treasury right now. A lot worse. And I'm going to say cash or treasuries. And I know people say, well, if the government collapses, well, we're going to pay on our treasuries. Even if we have to print the money to do it, and 5% or 4% is better than nothing. Um, I've been forecasting a false recovery, and I'm second-guessing whether we're going to see a real false recovery. A lot of people say, you're right, they're talking about a double-dip recession. This was our false recovery. I have to be honest with you. I never said that this would be the recovery. I thought better. I thought Dow at 12,000, at least. You know, within 2,000 of its old high. I thought unemployment dropping one or two points minimum. You know, down to 8%. I thought we were going to start to look like we were on track, and it may never come. I may be wrong about that. I had Mike Gazer set, set up for an interview, and because of some technical problems, we didn't get the interview out. But when I asked him about my opinion of false recovery, and Mike is a guy who I respect immensely, he said, ain't happening. It's over. The high point of the stock market was last year on this recovery thing. It's done. He's forecasting a Dow uh, Jones Industrial Average, with a four at the beginning of it, and it ain't forty thousand, and that's pretty dark and it's pretty gloomy. And I don't disagree with the eventuality there. I still believe that there will be this big bubble in between before the second dip, but I could be wrong, and he could be right. So if you're saving even for eighteen years now, I'm going to say go with the safest allocation you can. I, and, and I will tell you to put some gold and silver away, too. And I would tell you that here's a, here's a staunch reality as opposed to debt as I am. When your child's 18, 19 years old, there is a possibility that if they need some money to go to school, more than they can make working a job or what have you, they can borrow it. You, If you need money between now and then to stay in your home, it will be hard to borrow because the fact that you borrowed is probably why you're going to be thrown out. If you keep the money liquid, you might use it one day to keep a roof over that child's head. If you put it in a 529A plan, it's going to be really hard to do. And I wouldn't put anything at risk right now. Mike put it to me this way. So there's a time to take your boat out and sail, and there's a time to tie up to the dock. And right now he believes it's time to tie up to the dock, and I'm beginning to feel that way more myself. 
And if you're playing the market right now on my false recovery, you're just trying to play to catch the bubble anyway. And you got to pick a point to get out anyway. Right now, and especially with the child fund like this, it's brand new. You're going to be putting some money into it every month, but not that much. The interest rate doesn't really matter in your first few years. Getting something accumulated in there of some value is what matters. I don't feel good about the stock market today, folks. I feel worse about it than I have in a long, long time. And I'm not going to tell you like I did in 2008, get out, get out, get out, when I knew, because I don't know now. But my gut is worse things to come. And I'll update you on that as I know more. And I'll try to get Mike on the show next week now that we're past our technical issues. But that's what I would do for my child if he were just born. I would put, I would start out with, you know, CDs for God's sakes, and start throwing money in. Just get a savings account, and once you get it up to a thousand dollars, you know, if this is an eighteen-year thing, and it's not that expensive of a penalty to pull out of a CD, get a three-year CD, and save up another thousand bucks, and get another three-year CD, and then start looking at your renewal times of your CDs, and start making sure that there's going to be. But you're going to stagger them like that naturally, you know. Um, Go to ING probably has some of the best rates out there. If you get a significant put, amount put away and you want to do a little bit better, yeah, treasuries are, are, are one. You know that's where people are putting money right now. Big money's putting money into treasuries. And Mike explained that this way. You know this is not grandma with a fifty dollars savings bond. And people want to know why people are buying treasuries. Another way to look at what I've already told you is these are people with these are countries buying treasuries. These are people with billions of dollars. You know why don't you go to Switzerland because they don't have that much bonds and debt to sell you. The United States is the only one foolish enough to take on that kind of a debt load. So there is some safety in U.S. Treasuries. Is it safe for 50 years? No. But it's probably safe for 10. And you have plenty of time between now and 10 to pull out of that and go back to a cash position or switch. You know, what I'm saying is keep your money liquid right now. If it's in stocks, fine. But be in a position where you can sell the stock. And go to something else if you feel you need to. Don't lock yourself into any type of thing right now that makes your money not liquid. And I really think it's time for people, right now, my gut is telling me this. If you're putting 10% into your retirement account and saving 5% is liquid, flip that around. Go to 5% contributions to your retirement account. Start saving some money outside of that retirement account. I think that whether I'm right or wrong, when this other side hits, cash is going to be king. And you're going to need it. And you're not going to want the penalties associated with withdrawal from a from a, a traditional, um, uh, you know, government uh, sheltered account. I've been told if you're using a Roth, which I think you should be Roth 401k, Roth IRA anyway, that you can get your contributions out without the penalty because you've already paid taxes on them. I haven't been able to verify the exact procedure or any limitations on that. If anybody knows the exact, and I need like. Not your opinion. I need it written by the government somewhere. What the stipulations are for withdrawal from a Roth, I would love to see that. And what can be taken out penalty-free. My understanding was always you can't. But the fact that you've already paid taxes on the, the principal invested would seem to me that maybe you could. So I, I'd like some more information on that. But for your kiddo, stick with cash, CDs, gold, silver, and keep it liquid. Because now and 18 years from now are a long-ass time, and it's good you're thinking ahead. But if it's really for your kid, someday it might be about feeding them. It's a noble thing to save for a child's future, but it's also a noble thing to make sure that they get to that future. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. 
Hey, Jack, this is Ben. Uh, I've just been listening to your show recently. I just discovered it a couple weeks ago. And the question I have is how do you prepare uh, your three-day or three-month worth of food and survival preparation if you live with someone else? Right now, I uh, rent a room in a house uh, that some girl owns. It's a house that has a garage and stuff, so I'm, I'm good in that aspect. But how do I seem not like a crazy survivalist? I can't be stocking food in her pantry. <laughs> like, months and months worth of food, it would be just a little bit weird. Uh, so anything, uh, any advice you have for someone living in an apartment or housing situation like me would be much appreciated. Thanks. Okay, well, the first thing that, that comes to mind for me is out of sight, out of mind. So, for instance, let's look at some basic, like, you got to get started anyway. So how much can we do before we even need any space outside of this room that you're renting and maybe the space under your bed? If you go to, like, Target or Walmart, you'll find these uh, clear Tupperware uh, trays that are really long and really uh, shallow. And you can put an awful lot of food in two or three of those. If your bed's high enough, and they make those little things for college students that jack a bed up a bit, um, you could get a much deeper bin, which is probably more practical. Two or three bins under the bed are going to take you through about a good 30-day reserve supply of food. Your 72 hours of food, your three-day food supply, should be part of a bug-out bag that, that primarily lives in your vehicle. Maybe you bring it in uh, when you park your car, but it should kind of go with you everywhere you go anyway. So that's just a bag. So now you're probably looking at 30 days plus 72 hours of reserves and some basic supplies that, that you don't even need to worry about a roommate or, in this case, a, a, a landlord where you're renting a room even knowing about. If you need more space than that, Keeping with the out of sight, out of mind thing, what you might want to do is go out to like, um, what do you call it, Goodwill or some garage sales or something and look for like an old style wall locker or they call them armoires or whatever, any type of, uh, like, it kind of like a, a standalone closet type thing. And, you know, talk to your, your landlord basically and say, I'd like to store some stuff in the garage uh, and I want to keep it neat. There's your reason, not I don't want you to see it. So I was going to buy this thing because I can get a good deal on it. Is it okay if I put that in the garage, right? I need to stick that out there in the garage. You might even lock it. You might. Now, here's the thing about locking it. Find a way to lock it like with a key instead of a big padlock hanging on it where, it again, if you put a big lock on something, a landlord's natural reaction is, I hope this guy's not dealing meth out of my house, right? But if you have, like, a, 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 a you know a lock that, that works almost like a door lock, you know, something that's, like, flush-mounted, um, and you might even leave it unlocked and a little bit open when you first put it in there, so that and you throw a few things in there, like, you know, a gym bag and some stuff like that, so that... That kind of creates this perception of they're not hiding anything. And eventually, as you start to stock up some foodstuffs and things like that in there, and additional emergency supplies, you keep it locked. Those two things alone should take you through about 60 days. If you live in an apartment, and it's your own apartment, you just take a closet and dedicate it for you know emergency supplies, and you do the under-the-bed thing, and, and you're pretty good to go. Your situation is different because you're living with somebody. Apartment with a roommate, you're in a very similar situation. Now... What you may want to do is very carefully and slowly over time breach some of these subjects with the person because obviously you'd be in a much better position of this, of this as you call her, some girl that's renting you the house was a little bit prepared herself. You know, if you just like, hey, check this out and put together a basic blackout kit, right? There's a great way to breach the subject. Go get a little soft, a soft-sided bin like we use for our blackout kit. Flashlights, extra batteries, solar crank radio, um, candles, 
uh, and anything else that you want in your blackout kit, right? Go get a couple of the power failure lights and say, hey, some girl, you use her real name, right? Hey, some girl, look what I've done. Uh, I realize that we might have the power go out someday, so I put this together. We're going to keep this here. If that's okay, if you don't want it there, tell me where to put it. And I put a couple of these little thingies in the wall, and if the power ever goes out, you just grab one and it's like a flashlight. That is going to be well received. Anybody that doesn't receive that well, find a new place to live because they're, fu they're, they're, they're just, they're, I don't know, they're, 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 they're messed up in the freaking head. Alright, I, to, to look at that and go, that's paranoid, is dumb. Right? And then you got that dumb some girl and you need to find a new some girl to rent a, a room from. So, that, and then let that be. Because you'll probably get some like, oh, I never thought of that. I wonder what else we should do. Well, it might be a good idea if we had a little bit of extra canned food around if we ever, uh, can't leave the house for, you know, an ice storm or, you know, hurricane or something like that. You might be able to slowly convert this person to a prepper without coming out and going, I'm a survivalist. Because you're right, that's a bad idea. Uh, because obviously, if you end up having to hunker down at that place, you're not going to sit there and let the person who's put a roof over your head, even though they've charged you for it, starve too. You're going to want to share with that person. So you want to save up enough that if you stay put, if you don't bug out, you can help that person out too. Getting their participation would be a good idea. Even if, and if, you know, if it's like, well, we could have like an extra week or two of food in the, in the, in the pantry. Fine. Don't even worry about it. I'll take care of it. What do you like to eat? Write down all the food that comes in cans and boxes that you like to eat, and I'll take care of that. Let me do it. I appreciate you renting me the room at a great rate. Even if it, See, soft sell it. And then build that up and just say, hey, whenever you here's a list. Whenever we take something out, let's replace it. All of a sudden, you've got somebody at least a little bit on board with you. So now if they happen to go under your bed and, you know, when they're not supposed to because you're a tenant, but if they happen to notice that bin of, of uh, you know, beans and rice under the bed, it's not a big shock. It's like, oh, this is more food. And I find that the, the two places that most people are the most receptive to this is not having, you know, a, a year's worth of food, but having some extra food around, some extra water around, and a blackout kit. Those all seem to be very soft ways. So there's my best advice there, and that applies to anybody in a similar situation. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. Uh, my name's Derek Sheriff. I live in Arizona. I'm the um, Arizona State Chapter Coordinator for the Tenth Amendment Center, and I love your show. Uh, it's been tremendously helpful. A question I have is uh, something I have not really been able to find a good answer to, even though I've uh, asked people on the forum and whatnot. And that has to do with ethanol production, actually not really ethanol production, but uh, running a generator on ethanol. I understand that uh, you, you can't really just run a normal gas uh, generator on ethanol and expect it to uh, last. And by the way, I, I understand all the legal uh, problems I'm talking, a, a purely shit-hit-the-fan scenario, uh, end of the world as we know it. Is there a generator out there uh, that you can purchase that is ready to run on pure ethanol or close to eth uh, pure ethanol that can be purchased right away? If not, what kind of considerations uh, do I need to uh, think about when making modifications to the generator? Or, uh, better yet, how do I find somebody who can make those modifications for me? Thanks a lot. Uh, keep up the great work. Out. Yeah, that's an interesting question, and it's one that I honestly can't 
completely answered because I don't know if there's a generator out there that's designed to run on pure ethanol or let's say E85. The best I can do for you with consideration of running is this, and if somebody knows I'm wrong about this, let me know and, and we'll do a correction. The problem with running the generator on ethanol isn't the motor running itself. It's the components that remain in contact with the ethanol being corroded because ethanol, unlike gasoline, uh, among its many other problems, is highly corrosive. So the reason you can't run, let's say, E85 in an older car that's not designed to run E85 is not that the engine won't function, but all of the fittings, the fuel lines, all of the components that that ethanol remains in contact with for any t length of time uh, become corroded. And eventually that corrosion leads to mechanical failure uh, or, or, or leaking or, or something like that. Sooner or later it causes the equipment to wear out way, way, way prematurely. So my instinct is, since a generator engine and a, a car engine are inherently so similar from a, man, uh, a mechanical standpoint of functionality, you got the same scenario. So if you wanted to make a generator that would run ethanol, or E85, you know, with some gas stored up to cut it back a little bit, uh, you would need to worry about the corrosion, and you would need to use fittings and a gas, a fuel tank, and everything that, that would resist the corrosion by ethanol. And you'd have to find what those components are, and you kind of have to jerry rig that all together. That said, I don't think it's really the the way forward, so to speak, for an end of the world scenario. The reality is that a generator is a short term solution to electrical needs. If we are in the total end of the world as we know it, as you describe it, the ethanol you produce will be worth more as alcohol for consumption and medical purposes than it will ever be worth as a fuel. That's number one. Number two, whatever you're going to distill to make the ethanol out of will be worth more as food than even alcohol unless you have a major surplus of it. In other words, in an end of the world as we know it, uh, a couple five-gallon buckets full of corn are worth more as corn than they are as whiskey to you personally. Maybe not on the black market that would show up around there, and maybe there would be a time to start doing that, but initially you're going to be more worried about feeding yourself than turning on a light bulb. For long-term energy outages, you need to look to something like solar and wind. It is the only way that we're going to have any kind of redundancy in our electrical system for the long haul. To make a generator as efficient as possible for long-term use, what I would look at doing is getting yourself a great big-ass liquid propane tank and getting a, a generator that will run on gas, you know, propane. And I would get the biggest one I could afford to fill up. And the storage life of that stuff is all but infinite. You have to worry about the tank failing before the fuel becomes bad. So it has, an, it, for, for our human lifetime purposes, an infinite storage life. Now, if you have that, and you had uh, one of the very large propane tanks, you may be able to go months, if not to a full year, of some electrical redundancy, and that would give you time to maybe try to salvage and scavenge some solar panels or put together some kind of wind generation or something like that. A generator as a standalone and distilling your own ethanol is not a solution for the end of the world as we know it. It just isn't. Putting it a completely different way of looking at it, right now when we make 100 million gallons of ethanol, at, with economy of scale and all of this modern production and everything else going on with it, 
It's a net energy loss. Ethanol is a net energy loss. That's why it's a bad political policy. If they can't make a hundred a hundred million gallons efficiently, you can't make a hundred gallons from an energy standpoint efficiently. Now I know you might say, well, "I'll burn as much trees as I have to to produce some electrical power," but I think we're we're thinking the wrong way there. And the cost of modification of a generator to make it run ethanol, and then the cost of being able to produce the ethanol in any quantity uh, in a in a shit at the fan scenario um, probably outweighs the cost of putting in some basic solar redundancy. Maybe 300, 400, 500 watts of panels, something like that. Battery backup with some inversion. Uh, you're probably going to get a lot further along in a long-term scenario with that. The best advice I can give you with long-term with a generator, large capacity natural gas storage, uh, independent of the grid, and a generator that will run on that. That's the best you're going to do there, and it's way better than trying to make moonshine to run your generator. All right, let's take another one. Jack, Carson from Canada here. I'm listening to yesterday's show. Uh, when you were talking about the swine flu, it reminded me about something I'd looked at that points out how much of a non-issue the swine flu was. I looked at the CDC website. The average for the average number of deaths yearly for the seasonal flu is around 32,000. Um, for the swine flu, their estimate was about 8,600 to 1,700, 8,600 to 17,000 deaths um, from the swine flu. So even on the high end, it's just barely over half of the regular seasonal flu. Uh, that just goes to back up your points about how much of a non-issue the wine flu pandemic was and you can't listen to experts because I heard one expert on the radio say that what made the swine flu a pandemic is the fact that it is a new strain if that's true then why isn't every year the new strain of the cold um, the common cold called a pandemic uh, love the show hope you have a great day bye I don't have too much to add to that especially to keep the show short because it always goes long when I do these call-in shows but let me read you, just for this expert's edification, the definition of a pandemic according to the World Health Organization that actually declares things a pandemic. One, there must be the disease must be new to the population, so he was right about that, or at least a disease that has not surfaced for a long time. I find that to be a stupid definition because an existing disease could all of a sudden go pandemic. But we'll let that go. The disease must be caused by a disease-causing agent that infects humans, causing serious illness. Duh. I think we're back to don't put your, your genitals in a hornet's nest again. More on that in a bit. Um, the agent must spread easily and sustainably among humans. Yeah. So that was the original definition. Now, because... They acted like idiots during the swine flu pandemic that wasn't. They've added two new criteria. It must be highly morbid and have a high mortality uh, rate. In other words, a lot of people have to get seriously ill, morbidity, and a lot of people have to die, mortality. And if it doesn't have those two things, it's not considered a pandemic. In other words, we can have a new strain of the common cold and it can infect the entire planet but if people just wipe their nose and carry on about their life and it doesn't really affect anybody and nobody ends up hospitalized and no one dies and the death rates aren't any higher than normal, it's not a pandemic. 
Well, they added those things because they looked like idiots after the last declared pandemic of swine flu. And I think Carson's numbers are right. Nice call, Carson. And folks, remember, don't listen to experts because they're usually wrong. Listen to yourself because if you take in all of the information and process it with logic, you're going to be more often right. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Paul in Ohio. I was wondering what you would think about the Federal Reserve basically not giving Congress or the government any more money. If they just kind of said, we're not going to print or create any money for you, do you think that's possible? And if it was possible, what do you think, what do you think would happen? A great show as always. Thanks. Well, if we ever got to that point, the Fed says there is no more money, you have to make do with what's in circulation. Um, deep shit springs to mind. I mean, that's, uh, and it's a highly unlikely scenario. What's more than likely is that they keep doing it to the point where they destroy the currency. To do this, there's a couple things that would have to happen first. First, you would have to get to a point where no one, no foreign government, no domestic citizens, no anybody would buy U.S. treasuries anymore. As long as somebody's buying the treasuries, that's in effect loaning money to the government. It's incumbent upon the Federal Reserve to convert that into currency. All right. So first thing would have to happen, nobody wants to borrow, borrow, uh, loan the government money anymore. And then the Federal Reserve would have to say, and we are no longer willing to buy our own debt with fake money that we can create out of thin air. So we're no longer willing to monetize the debt. We're not going to be the lender of last resort anymore. Those two things would have to happen. There would probably immediately be impeachment proceedings on at least, uh, you know, Ben Bernanke or whoever was filling his role, uh, if this happens sometime in the future, uh, because if the president does appoint the Fed chairman and an attempt to put in a chairman that would do it anyway. Because the government still does exercise some control over at least that uh, public level of the Fed. The other side of this, though, kind of going in a little bit of conspiracy realm, is I don't believe that the chairman and the board that we see publicly has as much power as we've been led to believe. I believe that there are people inside the Fed that make more decisions and basically tell those people what to say. And some people will say, I'm going out in the world of Alex Jones there. I don't think so. Um, the fact that we had a Federal Reserve chairman that told Congress and Forbes magazine, no, I won't tell you where we sent your $2 trillion and there's nothing you can do about it and no one did anything, um, if it was just at a public level, I don't think that shit would be tolerated by, by even our incompetent government. There is entities with inside it that basically tell the, 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 the public figures what they're allowed to do and what they're allowed to say. And I don't say those public figures have no input, but there's somebody that pushes leverage on them that you'll never see. The man behind the curtain, as they say. I also think that there's a lot of leverage that the Federal Reserve exerts over the government. So this is like a uh, incestual uh, mafia that we've got going on here. But if we ever got to that point, basically the only time that would happen is when it's no longer possible. When the currency has been so devalued and no one wants to give the government money and it's the end of, all, it's the, end of the economy as we know it which is the end of the world as we know it. Now, more to the spirit of your question, could the Federal Reserve wake up one day and just say, no, we're not doing it? Technically, yes, but not really. Because again, as long as anybody's going to buy treasuries, the government has a source of funding. So it would take 
Now, could the Fed say recall and do things? I, this is not likely, the question you're asking. It's more of not if they would do it because they want to or they can, but would they do, would they, is there any situation that would get to a point where they just can't? And the reality is there is no situation which they can't because it's fiat, which means you just type more numbers in the computer, even if the money's not coming in from outside sources anymore. You just keep monetizing the debt to uh, ad infinium. It's the result of that action that we have to be concerned with, which is hyperinflation, the devaluing of the money to toilet paper. And, and that's the bigger threat, and that, that's what I'm more concerned with. But it's an interesting question that makes you think. Um, but if the Fed ever said no more money, get in your bunker, even though I say you don't need a bunker, because it's, kind of, it's that kind of a breakdown the day that happens. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Brian. Uh, I would just want to know if there was any kind of uh, idea that you had for getting rid of hornets short of calling somebody out here to remove them for me. I was walking around in the woods. Just uh, in my wood line, there's a big-ass hornet's nest. Uh, I live here in Georgia. Um, there's the uh, the bald hornet's bald something or other, I forget. But uh, it's a pretty good-sized hornet's nest. Just wanted to know if there was anything that you knew offhand that I can go down there and take care of them, get them on their way. I'm not trying to kill them. I just want them to go somewhere else. Uh, that, that'd be good. Thank you. It's not an easy situation to pee in, and I don't envy you here. Uh, you may have to kill them. I'm with you. I don't want to kill them. Bald face, and your bald face is what you're looking for there. Bald face hornets are an extreme predator uh, in the insect world. Uh, they go out and they kill, unfortunately, beneficial insects, but a lot of uh, uh, bad insects as well. So having hornets somewhere near where you live, uh, as long as you can know they're there and don't inadvertently bang their nest or damage it and piss them off, is not a bad thing because you have a great insect-level predator. In your blind, not good. You need to go in there, I would imagine, to you know, deer hunt is probably what you have it for. Uh, if you lived in Maine or Ohio or something like that, I would say by the time you need to go deer hunting, it's going to go down below freezing. And as soon as it goes below freezing uh, and significantly below is a, sh you know, a hedge, 28, 27 degrees, something like that, It'll freeze the hell out of them. Go in there, cut the damn thing down, and just toss it wherever you want it to go, and, and they can try to make it when they uh, come out of, you know, basically a, a hibernative state. Georgia, by the time you need a hunt, it's probably still going to be nice and warm. So they're still going to be in there, and they'll bite the living hell out of you. I mean, you can't imagine how nasty a large hornet's nest can be when it turns on you. It is unbelievable. It could actually be a threat to your life. Uh, especially if you have any kind of even mild allergy. Uh, you know, I have a mild allergy. You get bit by one and it swells up and it's not really a threat to you. But if you get bit by 50 of them or 100 of them, even people without an allergy, that amount of bite can be a serious risk. Not to mention the, the cardiac risk just from the amount of pain and the fear and everything else. So it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation. Your best option might be to call in a pro, depending on how they're located and where they're at. Uh, your other option would be to get some type of an insecticide that you would kill them with, a wasp and hornet spray, and do that at night. And you might have to do it two or three nights in a row, a little at a time, uh, as long as you can get a clean shot through a window in the blind or something like that. And you need to try to target the bottom of the of the nest where they come in and out with your, with your stream. You can probably do that from about 15 feet away. You better only do that at night. 
and you better wear some good heavy clothing, you know, like a jean jacket or something with a long sleeve shirt underneath it, maybe even an insect head net or something like that. And as soon as you start to hear buzzing, you've sprayed enough for that night and get the hell out of there. That's why you might want to use a probe for something like this. These things are nasty. The only way I know that you can maybe get them to choose to leave is probably going to be through smoke. They don't really have much of a predator that you can introduce into the area. Um, no one wants to mess with them. Even a bear won't mess with them. It would tear your blind apart anyway. But you know they, they don't. They, they like they like they don't make honey or something like that. So they don't even attract. You know a bear's not willing to deal with them for that. So if you can somehow smoke them out. Now if this blind is up in a tree, if it's elevated, you got a solution, man. You build yourself a nice fire underneath it, uh, safe fire. I do most of your work in the evening or in the dark because then they're going to be dormant up there and you're not going to disturb them. Get a good fire pit going. Uh, rock ring around it. Get a good heavy coal fire going. Get a bunch of woody, punky, uh, punky, moldy, rotted wood and, 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 and moist leaves and stuff like that. And slowly add that to your fire over a couple days. Just keep a constant smoke channel. They'll leave. That will get rid of them. If it's a box blind on the ground, it's a little tougher. You need to somehow pipe smoke into there. So if you can kind of build a little fire pit off in the distance and rig up some kind of a pipe or something and, you know, go in there at night and set the pipe up and start your smoking the next day, turn your blind into a smokehouse for a few days, uh, you might be able to smoke them out. I don't know of any canisters of smoke, like smoke canisters that are going to have long enough duration to get rid of them. I guess the other thing you could do is, you know, those if you wanted to kill them, those bug bombs like foggers, uh, you could, you know, pop one of those like a grenade and toss it in there and run like hell and do that every day until the activity declines to next to nothing and then you can get in there with a good spray of a wasp and hornet killer it, again it, it may just be a case of bringing in a pro i hate killing things that um you know are beneficial in any way shape or form and as much as i hate hornets on some levels they are a beneficial uh, on others but in this situation they've chose to occupy space that you want to occupy and you are not cohabitable the two of you cannot get along there's no making peace with them when it comes to enrage once they're enraged they are one of the most evil forces on planet earth they really are that bad so they've got to go so if you can't smoke them out they got to die Sorry to be that blunt, but that's the way that it is. And if they got to die, it might be worth paying an exterminator a hundred bucks or whatever uh, to come in and take care of that for you with a more professional uh, level of uh, extermination. We can't be nice to everything. And if you're going to pick something to not be nice to, a hornet is probably one of the good things to not be nice to. Let's take one last question and we'll wrap up today. Jack, I love the show. I've been listening to you for about two months now. Um, I live in a very small uh, geographically isolated community, and I've been supporting a group called CERT that operates there. And the head of the CERT community read uh, several of the books, uh, like One Second After and Patriots. And we want to know what, as a community, we should be doing. We have people that garden. We have people that do some homesteading. But what are some recommendations? I know you're against groups, but this is something that you know, just kind of is. So uh, thank you. I appreciate your time. Okay, first, I, I want to point out that I think I've been misunderstood on some of my comments about groups. I am not against having a group of people with common values and common principles that agree to help each other out in a disaster and put some level of planning into it. I'm not against that at all. I'm not against having, if you find people that are of true survival mentality, uh, people that, that, that you know follow survival blogs and read books like you're talking about, and all of you kind of have that in common, 
even putting more organization behind it. What I'm against is the commune, the land commune approach, okay, where five people get together and buy a hundred acres together, and everybody goes in as a financial partner into the arrangement, and then we're all going to cooperate and make this into a great survival retreat. I think that is a disaster 99.9 times out of 100, and if you can show me a dozen people that pulled it off, I would be shocked. And I could probably show you just from stuff on James Rawls's blog, dozens of people who have failed doing it because one side always feels the other side's not pulling their weight. If you wanted to do what I just described, I am okay with that. But then I would say do it this way. The five of you go look at this piece of land. If everybody can agree on a 20-acre parcel, and what that, you know, maybe there's, like, some of the land's a little bit better than others, and everybody says, okay, well, it's not going to be a split 20%. I'm going to do 15. You're going to do 25 because you're getting that better piece of land. And if everybody can agree on that, then you go to the seller and you say, we're going to give you full price or we'll make an offer for this much, but we want the land subdivided on purchase. And you can all live just like you think you would normally live, but that's your piece and this is my piece. And if I want solar, I do solar. And if you want a bunker, you do a bunker. In other words, what I'm saying is any group should be a federation, a true federation. And in a true federation, unlike what we have in the United States, which is a captive federation, if one component part of the federation wishes to leave, they can because it's a voluntary agreement. So that if I decide one day I really don't want to be part of your group anymore, I can leave clean. We don't have to divide up the bullets. We don't have to divide up the band-aids. We don't have to divide up the beans. And we don't have to divide up the land. All right, That's what I say stay away from. A group of that is a true federation, a voluntary federation of individuals, I'm all for. What it sounds like you have is that naturally occurred. And that's my point. If you base what you do on principles and values, and if you talk to people, these things naturally start to form. And like attracts like, so you will find the people that are concerned about these things in your community. Once that's done, you can go to a higher level of organization. It sounds to me like the first step you guys need to do is start to put together some level of a roster. Now, I don't mean a membership roster. I mean a skills roster and a resources roster of people that are willing to help. So if you have a guy that, let's say, works for a uh, does tree trimming and firewood cutting, and he has a crew, and he has chainsaws and stuff, that's good to know. Right, and if, remember, most disasters are not Patriots level disasters. Right, they are, and for those who know what I'm talking about, there's a book called Patriots Surviving the Coming Collapse, where the whole thing melts down. Most disasters are acute in nature and duration. In other words, a storm rolls through and smashes a bunch of houses down and trees on cars and stuff like that. And the sheriff's department and fire and PD and all of those guys are trying to help. At that point, the community organizes to augment the organized response. So old lady Johnson's house might be in the worst shape and she might be old and enfeebled and she might be a number one priority for the community to help out. But if the sheriff's department and fire and PD are already there helping her, that's not where the guy on your roster that can do that kind of work should be sent. He should be sent to kind of a lower tier priority for first responders, but what you guys consider a priority for the community that's not being helped by the first responders. So it requires some forethought in your planning as to what level of response can we expect from sheriff, PD, fire, uh, it, it, you know, two days later, three days later, a week later, FEMA, and the most likely does, and what are the most likely things that we're uh, about to go into? On a full level collapse, now you need kind of let's say a group within a group, 
a group that's a little bit tighter, a group that's a little bit more of a tighter federation, that says to it, a little more of a tighter, you know, self-directed constitutional republic. Responsibilities, knowledge, skills, resources. Because what you're going to want to do is you want, if you think about the military, you want that internal group to be more like a special forces unit. Which is, special forces is not just a bunch of badass guys that can go out and kill somebody. Special forces is a force multiplier. So I take a four-man A-team of special forces and I drop them off in the middle of some ungodly world with some money, some resources, and their skills and knowledge. And six months later I come back and those four guys are gone. They've disappeared and they're on another mission. And they've left behind a group of people that can fight a guerrilla war that are trained, that have been, some of them have been bought and paid for. You know? The structure's been set up. That's what they do. So totally different mission. But your core group in a community group like this should be the ones that go, basically, I've got the relationship with these five people. I've got solid, these guys don't really fit the core group, but I've got relationships with them. And here's what I know they can do. And if we have a, a larger scale meltdown, I will reach out to these five, and this is what I will propose to them. That doesn't mean that you can count on them doing it. Right? And that's the big thing. You can't count that they'll do it, but if I have five and you have ten and he has eight and another person has six that we kind of expand that core group with, and these are people that are part of the day-to-day stuff anyway, and half of them are willing to buy in, then we create this net initially that helps the community from falling apart. Right? And that's the kind of group scenario I am totally for. But this concept that I'm going to go post some shit in an internet, you know, internet chat board, and I'm going to meet four or five like-minded individuals, and we're all going to go to frickin' Idaho together and buy a piece of land, and if the shit hits the fan, we're all going to run there from four corners of the nation and reunite and fight a guerrilla war in the mountains is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's great fan fiction. I've said this about the book Patriots. I've read it three times, and I think it's terribly written. But why did I read it three times? It's entertaining, and there's a lot of useful information in there. Right, And it's kind of like a car wreck. You can't drive by without looking at it. But that scenario, for if we're planning for reality, is just not real. I'm sorry, it's not. That's not how it works. You know? The whole Red Dawn thing where there's a group of people up in the mountain. You know what they do with that? If you have a real full-scale war where the military's involved, they start eliminating grid squares until you're gone. They just start dropping artillery on it until you're gone. Or they find you, and there's no firefight. There's one call on a radio and you're gone. You don't believe that? Ask some of those guys in Iraq. Oh, they're dead. That's right. Ask them what a JDAM does. You can't because they don't even hear it. Brilliant flash of light and you're off to whatever your belief of the other side is. That's reality at full-scale warfare. What we're worried about is not a situation in which the black helicopters flying, they're all coming to get us and the UN wants their money back, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Right? What we're really worried about is a situation where we have enough things thrown at society at one time that it breaks down to a point where the systems of support begin to implode and fall in around it. And there's certain places and pockets and, and resources that are just no longer available. And then the response that human beings have to that when they freak out, when they can't feed and clothe and keep the lights on and stay warm. And that leads to kind of a mob rule. And that's more the threat 
than Dutch people coming here to poison us with gas. And if you've read the book, that's what it comes down to in the book. And then you stealing the gas and poisoning the bad people back with it. It's just stupid. I'm sorry. No offense to Mr. Rawls. Great guy, great resource, but that kind of scenario is not real. And building a community around that type of scenario is, a, is a, just a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a leading to a disaster. But beating, building a true federation of people, more along the lines of the type of thing that Mel Tappan talked about back when he was still with us, that is the way that I see to build community and group. So that's the best I can do for you on that. And anybody who's, I just slaughtered a sacred cow with my comments on Patriots. Remember, that's my opinion. That's my opinion. Uh, as far as the quality of the book or whatever. But um, when it comes down to it not being a realistic scenario, I think that's more than opinion. I think there's some fact there. And I think we need to plan more, again, like I said, for community breakdown and destruction and holding a community together. Because if you hold a big enough community together... You guys will figure out how to get through anything. It's been done over and over again throughout the eons of history. Remember the big thing, though, folks. The big thing is to make sure that you're prepared. If you make sure that you're prepared, you can be part of the solution. If you're not prepared, you are going to end up being part of the problem, even if you don't want to be. So prepare your own household first, and then worry about your neighbor. There's a lot of proverbial wisdom uh, there, if we wanted to dig into some of the proverbs. All right, with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. One final announcement: I am going on vacation starting now. You may not even hear from me if you won the contest. I've made a promise to my wife while we're in Arkansas. I will not be answering my cell phone unless it's her calling me. I will not be answering email. I will not be doing tech support. I am not coming back till Monday. Uh, if you can't get into the MSB or something like that, you know you have a. Pro I'm sorry. There will be no tech support between right now and Monday next week, uh, and it'll be Monday afternoon sometime when we get back. And there will be no show Monday. So there you go. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way The others will follow Revolution is you